great is the Lord, that's what you proclaimed, and in essence you were saying, because the rest of life really isn't that. Would you agree? I mean, sometimes we live our lives thinking that the world is great, but it's, it's, it has its good things. I mean, life is good. God's given that to us. But life in this world, even though, even though grandkids are around, and that's really good, and you have moments of times where it's like a taste of heaven to let you know that God has something greater in store, but a lot of this world just is not great. And so we gather here this morning to say, but we know who is. He is great. And that's where our ultimate devotion is given. That's where we seek satisfaction in life is from the one who is great, who is always great, who's never kicked off his throne of greatness. He always is. And may, may that message ring in our hearts this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, if you would, please. It's a joy to uh, lead us in preparing our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table today. We'll be doing that by looking at one of the meals that Jesus uh, prepared for, for the world, for people. And as you're finding that, I just wanted to mention something that you'll see in your bulletin. Your bulletin's kind of full today. It's got three different inserts. Uh, but one of those is for Team Woodside. Uh, we don't talk a lot about this, but we do want you to know that there's kind of a creative ministry at Woodside, supported from all the campus, called Team Woodside. It's a group of runners that prepare for, ultimately, the Free Press Marathon in October in the city of Detroit. And they use that not just to build fellowship and friendship and pursue good health, and all, although I question whether a marathon is good health. That seems really far, but some people run half, some have done, our family uh, did a marathon relay, and so you broke that up, so you might want to consider that, because Team Woodside not only pursues preparing for the marathon, they also use that to raise funds for kids that are in harm's way in Thailand and India. Uh, it's a ministry that Woodside started a number of years ago, and it's one of the creative ways that we support uh, those kids, their education, healthy nutrition, a healthy place to stay. Um, we, we support churches in India, and they're caring for families of young girls who their society just doesn't value the, the, the girls, and so we want to communicate value and support the pastors that do. Uh, so you might want to pray about serving. If you've ever thought about joining a running team, connect with them. There's a, there's a link on the card there that you might uh, connect with, and a couple years ago, four years or so ago, Team Woodside actually came here to Algonac for the Pickerel Run, uh, 4th of July weekend, during the Pickerel Festival. So if you join the team, you might be able to have some pull to have that group come again uh, and, and serve here. So this morning, as I mentioned, we're continuing this series called Soul Food. When a meal with Jesus was more than food. Uh, the book of Luke captures a number of instances where Jesus spent time around the table, a time at a meal, or talking about food. And each, each one of those situations was a significant moment 
of mission where Jesus was talking about something powerful or the love of God or the mission of God. And there was incredible life change and transformation that took place around a mundane thing like a meal. And the meal we're going to talk about today in Luke chapter 9, probably one of the most famous meals and one of the few that's recorded that Jesus actually prepared the meal. Typically, Jesus comes to the table and receives what someone else has prepared. Here, Jesus is preparing the meal for those that gather. You know, meals are an important part of family life. Uh, studies abound that indicate the correlation between having at least one meal together as family with the emotional health of the family members. But I've got kind of a large family. There's, we've had six kids, and now we've got grandkids that join the table. And I found that often meals as a family are a little bit chaotic. Anybody have that? It, it can be noisy. Um, and a lot of times we can romanticize that view of everybody gather on the table, and everybody says, oh, this is delicious. Thank you, Mom, for this food. But... It's not always the case. In fact, we found that the curse from Genesis in the garden and the serpent has infiltrated the family table because I don't think there's ever been a time where everybody liked it. It's like with these six kids and a couple of adults and then adding you know, spouses and offspring. and Now you get this table filled with people. And in an American culture where our affluence has added this dimension of likes and dislikes. It's kind of made it pretty rough. In our family, we've got, we've got some that love spaghetti and sloppy joes and some that almost gag at spaghetti and sloppy joes. We've got some that love pizza and some that would say, oh, I hate pizza. And, and so you've got all these different varieties and you try to have a table, come on, everybody, and they come to the table and some say, hmm, and some say, eh. Like, oh, man, except on, when it's someone's birthday. Now, that still might happen, but on the day of a birthday, it's been our tradition where the birthday kid gets to pick the menu within reason. <laughs> and so on that day... That birthday kid can come to the table fully expecting to eat their fill with things that will completely satisfy not just their belly, but their taste buds. Well, in the meal we're looking at today, thousands of people gathered, and the description that Luke gives is that everyone was satisfied and went away full. And every meal that Luke records, where Jesus spent with people, he gives a lesson, he gives a point, something profound. And today we see that Jesus is able to fully satisfy all those who come to him. At the table that Jesus provided, a meal without a table actually, He's revealing that he can provide satisfaction to anyone who comes to him. 
So there's several truths that lead us to that conclusion. First of all, we see that Jesus will welcome you. He can welcome you. There's not things that would keep you away if you come to him with a desire to be satisfied. Let's look in verse 10. It says in Luke 9, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowd learned of it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So this scene, according to those verses, takes place after one specific event mentioned here, and actually in John's gospel it reveals there is a second significant event. What Luke mentions is that on their return, this scene happened. So their return, where did they return from? They returned from a mission trip, which if you had, whether your Bible and your device you're looking at, or if you had your paper Bible with you, you could look a few verses ahead. Some of you, all you have is the screen, and that's okay. But if you bring your Bibles, that's even better. When I get boring, you can look ahead, you can look beyond, you can learn so much. So bring your Bibles with you, I'd recommend. We have Bibles out here in the lobby. If you forget or if you need one, feel free to use one of those. So here in Luke, if you look a few verses earlier, it shows that Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples. He gave them power and authority over demons, and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So they had spent the last several days experiencing all kinds of miracles through their hands, through the power that Jesus gave to them. And so they had just returned, and now they're gathering together. Have you ever, ever come back from a missions trip? And you just couldn't wait to tell people everything about it? And you couldn't wait to get to your own bed because you are fully exhausted. If you've never had that experience, I encourage you. Woodside is committed to sending us to various cultures. And there's every year, there's mission trips, except for COVID year. Every year, mission trips, they give you a chance to experience this. It's, a, it's, it's an incredibly exhilarating experience to be in a place where God clearly works through you, where he brings you to the point of utter exhaustion but fills you with stories of the kingdom of God. Well, that's what their experience was. They come back where Jesus pulls them aside and says, guys, you're exhausted. I'm tired. Let's go into, let's go up out, out away from the crowds and let's tell one another the stories and let's find rest. Keith has been on a mission trip. Gary, Carol, several have been to Thailand. Um, and they've told of the, really the quite exhilarating experience, waking up early in the morning and, and you load in the vehicles. Some people get vans, maybe some people sit in the back of pickup trucks and driving for miles up into the mountains of Thailand area where you pull into a region and, and, and then you, you disembark those vehicles and you set up this major medical mission and some are setting up the kids' ministry and gospel presentation and some are organizing the medications and the intake process and the doctors on the team and the dentists are setting up their, their little stations and uh, all day long 
They minister. Sometimes the line in these villages goes forever. People had traveled days to get to this place in hopes of finally having some medical care. And so it's exhausting. And then they, at the end of the day, they load up the vehicles and they travel back into where they're staying, utterly exhausted. But I've also learned not to feel too badly for them because where they stay is pretty nice. In fact, I found out that you can go and you can clean up and maybe have a beautiful four or five course meal. And then, if you're really tired, you take a, a couple block walk and for a couple bucks, you can find someone, pay someone to give you a foot massage that just takes all the stress and care away. Right, Keith? Oh, yeah. Why does Keith go on the mission strip? Mm-hmm. Don't you feel too badly for them. They work hard, no doubt. That's pretty nice, too. Well, don't get Keith and Gary's experience in your mind with these guys. They didn't come back to a four-star hotel and a four-course meal. They didn't come back to someone that grants them a foot massage. Jesus, when he sent them out, he said, don't take any food or any things with you because I want you to watch God provide for you. So they would go not knowing where they would lay their head that night. And maybe sometimes they'd have to sleep in the wilderness. Maybe sometimes they found shelter from a home. It's exhausting work. That's the scene that opens up here. And so they pull away. Kind of, let's say, in this mission's caravan that they, they pulls into this spot and they've been longing for that McDonald's hamburger and Coke because it's for days they've been without. And they pull into McDonald's and there's another big tent with lines of people saying, oh good, we found you, time to care for us. That's the experience of Jesus and the disciples. Utterly exhausted, pulling away, and the crowd hears about it, and they follow them and say, we've got so many people with disease and needs. Would you care for us? And Jesus, instead of saying, sorry, you should have gotten here sooner, Jesus turns the disciples back to the crowd and says, let's care for them. Because here's the thing with Jesus. He welcomes them, and speaks to them of the kingdom, and he heals their diseases. That's what Jesus does. To those who come to him, even if they're suspecting that maybe Jesus is too weary for me, maybe he's tired of my coming to him again, maybe I don't deserve time with Jesus, Jesus is there welcoming you, receiving you, speaking to you the kingdom, and curing you of disease. That's what he does. Essentially, in this scene, Jesus is revealing to us again the character of the nature of God. Because this is what his Father does. This is who God is. Jesus, remember, fully God, fully divine, revealing himself, revealing God to us in human flesh so we can understand who God is. Jesus is revealing the nature of God who had declared through the generations that the Lord, our God, neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
The Lord does not grow tired, does not grow weary. That's what he says through the prophet Isaiah. He never gets tired. He never has to sleep and get caught up. You can never have a time in your life where God is disengaged from you. He is always attentive to the needs of his people. That's who God is, and that's what Jesus was revealing to us. When he shows himself and his disciples filled to the brim with ministry, people coming to him, and Jesus says, I still have more. As the psalmist learned, my help comes from above, comes from the Lord who does not slumber nor sleep. And yet Jesus also reveals what we do when we are, as humans, are tired and exhausted. Where Jesus revealed to us in his desire to pull away and spend time with the Father and be restored. He's, as a man, fully man, remember Jesus was fully God and fully man, As fully God, he revealed that God never grows tired and he always welcomes you. As fully man, he reveals he has experienced fatigue. He knows what it's like to get to that point of utter exhaustion. And Jesus, as the book of Luke reveals, often was his practice to pull away and spend time with his father. And I tell you, if Jesus needed to spend time with his father to be restored and sustained for ministry. Don't you think we do too? Do we really think that I can go through my life and just coming once a week, coming to church and getting, giving spoon-fed the word of God and that's all I need? Or isn't it really true that if we are going to be sustained for ministry and continue to have the energy that he calls us to, to be a part of his his mission that we need to spend time in his word and spend time pulling away from the busy and crazy of life and be restored and rejuvenated by God. Jesus was also experiencing grief in this moment. That's what John reveals had just happened. Jesus had just received word from the disciples of John that Herod had just beheaded him. So John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was preparing the way of the Lord. John and Jesus had an intimate relationship in ministry. And Jesus just hears of his beheading. And so he pulls away to find restoration in God. And I tell you what, if you're experiencing grief in those times that you experience grief, your tendency is going to be just to be angry with God, but I'm telling you, there's no other place to turn to when you're grieving than to the God who understands, the God who knows. Remember, Jesus is acquainted with our ways. He knows grief. He's experienced loss. And he is there for us. Go to him. Even though it feels like you should push away, the reality is, there's, is the, this is the last person to push away from. Instead, find time with him in his word. So here's Jesus, fully man, revealing to us he knows what fatigue is. He knows what grief is. And he convinces us that he welcomes us when we come in our time of need. Secondly, 
As the story goes, we can see that Jesus provides for all who need him. Verse 12 says, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. We are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. He said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So first, Jesus says to the disciples who were concerned for the weariness of the people and probably for themselves, you know, don't think there wasn't a little bit of, ah, oh, Jesus, we're tired. I mean, they're tired. <laughs> and we're tired too. Send them away. And then Jesus says, well, you give them something to eat. Now, why would, why would he say that? Jesus knew they didn't have enough food for 5,000, maybe up to 15,000 people when you add the women and children. He knew that. So why would he ask them to give them something to eat. Well, you can surmise it. Here's a few thoughts that I had. First of all, he seems to be revealing their own inadequacy. Remember, this is a group of disciples that just came back from the missions trip. Maybe there was a sense of, wow, I was something. You should have seen me. This guy was... Foaming at the mouth and throwing himself into the fire. And I just said, get out of them. And the demon left. Check for me. Sticker in my helmet. Write that in my employment file. Bonus coming up for me. Oh yeah, that's pretty good. But you know what I, you, know, you can just maybe imagine. Now, they probably wouldn't have been so crass, but maybe there's this subtle thought that crept into their minds, kind of like what creeps into ours where we have times of success. Or maybe we'd never say it. We would just act the part that God's blessed to have us on his team. So Jesus says, all right, superheroes, feed the team, feed the people. And so they did a quick survey. Who brought something? Just this little boy, John's gospel tells us, this little boy's lunch. It's all we have. So Jesus says, I'll take care of this. Maybe he did it to lead them to this lesson that the meal was going to prepare. Maybe to show them what God can do with the meager things that we offer them, offer to him. Maybe this is to, to show us once again that God has equipped us not for our own glory or not to a point of self-sufficiency, but to enable us to partner together with him in mission. Don't forget that whatever God has given to you, he's done it not just so that you can be comfortable. He's done that so that you can take part in the mission that he's called you to. We are fellow laborers with Jesus. So whatever he's given to you, education, a beautiful home, a couple cars, a boat on the river, 
a beautiful family, great gifts and wonderful education. All of that is not because you are God. But because you have a God who welcomes you and equips you to be a part of his mission in the world. So how are you going to use those things for his mission? So we had the people sit down in groups. And then, again, he reveals to us the nature of God. You see, there's a name of God that was given kind of coined by one of their forefathers, or you could say the forefather of the Jewish people, Father Abraham. Abraham was promised by God that he would have a son, and from this son would come a multitude of people. When God gave him that promise, Abraham was old. But by faith, he believed in the promise. And then years go by. So now Abraham and his wife are both well past the age of bearing children. But God provided. Sarah conceived, gave birth to a son. And to help Abraham know for sure this was a miracle of God, God called Abraham to take his one and only son, Isaac, into the mountain, and God asked him to sacrifice his provision for Abraham. And then God amazingly provided a ram caught in a thicket as the substitute for that offering of his son. And as Abraham offered the ram as a sacrifice, he said, this place is going to be called Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. I want people to know everywhere that this God will provide. Now, it's interesting that Abraham didn't name him the Lord has provided. He named him the Lord will provide. In other words, it was his desire for the world to know that the Lord didn't just provide, the Lord will provide. Because there's something greater than just a son in your old age that's coming. That the Jehovah will provide the solution to mankind's greatest dilemma, which is their sin issue. So God revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh. God then revealed himself to Moses as he delivered the people out of Egyptian slavery and took them to the promised land. They got hungry. Jehovah Jireh. God provided manna. They stepped outside their their tent in the morning and there there was food from heaven. Enough for the day and they gathered it. They ate. They went to bed. Woke up the next day. Jehovah Jireh. He provided again. Then we get thirsty, and so God had water come from a rock. I'm tired of the bread. All I get is bread and water. God had quail come fall from the sky. Jehovah Jireh. So the people had all these stories in history. And Jesus, in this scene, says, sit down in groups, because I want to show you Jehovah Jireh, that the Lord will provide. All you had is five loaves and two fish for 15,000 people. Watch Jehovah Jireh. That Jesus can provide for all of our needs. No matter how daunting the the challenge, no matter how hopeless the situation seems to be, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. You can trust him. 
So do you believe him? A good test on whether you believe in Jehovah Jireh that the Lord will provide is how you act when you get to that point where it looks like there's no provision. Do we panic? Do we run away? Do we pull in into a time of depression when we're at the end of our rope? Or have we hidden God's word in our hearts so that when we are in that place where we see no answer, that our, all we have is five loaves and two fish, we have the promise in our hearts that the Lord will provide. And I don't know how, but he's never failed me. And I doubt I'm so special that I'd be the first person on earth that would be failed by God. And I love this last verse in this story. Verse 17 says, And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. They all ate and were satisfied. That Jesus satisfies all who hunger for him. The aspect of satisfaction. Because here's the, here's the thing. Lest we pick up a, tr a lesson and miss the main point. Because that's what a lot of people did in this story. As, again, as if you were to continue to read this account and other gospel accounts, people ate from the bread and were satisfied. And then... The scripture tells us then they decided to take Jesus by force and make him their king. After this big meal, where it was delicious and satisfying, they thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'd like to eat like this every day. And if he's our king, let's make that we can do that. So let's force him to be our king now. Our timing is now, let's make him king so we can always eat like this. And when Jesus heard of that, he said to the crowd, you're following me because you want bread. I'm telling you, don't labor for the bread that perishes. You're following me because you want to be freed from the Romans. So let's say that happens. Then what? Look to your history. Freed from the Babylonians, and then the Persians occupy. Freed from the Persians, then the Greeks occupy. Freed from the Greeks, then the Romans occupy. What do you think is going to happen? If we free you from this, what's going to happen next? you think that's going to satisfy? It's not bread that satisfies. Jesus then said, for I am the bread of life. I am the bread. The bread won't satisfy. Oh, oh, oh I'll, I'll provide you bread so that you can learn the lesson that I satisfy. But a lot of times we're content to follow Jesus because we want more bread. Maybe a good question for us to meditate on as we go into our time of communion to me, 
Is Jesus useful or is he precious? Is Jesus useful or is he precious? In other words, are you following Jesus? Because if you do that, it's kind of like that video game where he goes here and you follow him. He leaves little gold coins around and you, you can eat those gold coins. So as long as you follow him, you get gold coins. And then once he stops leaving gold coins, it's like, oh, okay, wonder what else is out there. Or, or if he stops dropping gold coins, you say, what's wrong with him? Doesn't he love me? I want those coins. I want the bread. I want those things that I want. Where Jesus said, no, I've, I've, I've provided you some gold coins once in a while, some bread so that you know that I, I am the satisfier. Because you're going to get to the point in your life, maybe you, maybe you want healing from that disease. And you beg him for healing. What if he gives it? That would be awesome. But what will happen five years from now when another disease comes? Think of Lazarus. Where God, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Awesome. That would solve everything. Wouldn't it? Some of you have lost loved ones and... And I, I've been in that moment where I was sitting in that chapel saying, this would be a great time for a resurrection. But what happened a few years later after Lazarus rose from the dead? He died from something else. Because things in this world won't ultimately satisfy. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead so people could see that he, Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. Jesus provided bread for the multitude so they would say, he's the bread of life. Jesus blesses your life, not so that you can be consumed with all those blessings, but so that you could be consumed with him. That's why the Apostle Paul would write, I count all these things for loss, for the excellency of knowing Jesus. That's why the psalmist could say, as the deer pants for the water book, so my soul longs after you. Because they had learned, even those things we ask God for won't ultimately satisfy. When you are in a time of suffering, the only thing that will sustain you is how precious Jesus is. When the world is trembling and, and the enemy comes against us and we know there are dark days ahead for the world, it's not going to get tons better. It's going to get really bad. And if, you're, if your satisfaction is experienced by stuff, you can be really disappointed. But if you're seeking satisfaction from Jesus, from knowing him, the one that says, when you are in your darkest of times, I will never leave you or forsake you. When everybody else abandons you, I will not. Moths eat your treasures, thieves steal your stuff. But the treasure of heaven, Jesus himself, will never pass away. So have you come to your life 
come to a point in your life when you have moved from Jesus being useful to you to Jesus being precious. We've, we've all, maybe, maybe we've all been introduced to Jesus by his being useful to us in a time of darkness where he steps in and he cares for our need. Maybe at a, the bottom of it, our experience, we look up and we see how he took care of us. And we say, thank you, Lord, for taking care of me. He introduces himself to us in such a way. But the goal is so that he would become precious to us. For he is the bread of life. Let's meditate on that. Is is Jesus useful to me or has he become precious to me? We're going to sing about that. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, this is really a hard thing to grasp. We admit because we can't see you. Sometimes it's hard to even know we're experiencing time with you because you're not with us in bodily form right now. But as you told Thomas, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And so, Lord, we ask you in this moment to create in us a hunger, not just for what you can provide for us, but a hunger for you, that we'd be able to say and sing Jesus is enough. Though those other blessings in life can be encouraging and and helpful, my ultimate conclusion is Jesus is enough for me. Create in that desire in our hearts, we pray, Lord. Be with us as we sing. In Jesus' name.